I'd like to say good morning once again and uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be wrapping up this chapter this morning. And as a reminder, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, Matthew chapter 12 is really a chapter of confrontation. It begins with the Pharisees and scribes at the beginning of the chapter uh, debating and arguing over Sabbath regulations. And the chapter ends with an encounter with Jesus' earthly family. And we all know that family dynamics can be uh, kind of tricky at times. Uh, some of us have really great families, and we love to be around them. Some of us have some dysfunctional families. And uh, we, uh, are you raising your hand? That's you, Kim? <laughs> some of us have dysfunctional families, and it's difficult to be around them and gather with them. And some of us have a mixture of both. Now, Jesus' family, his earthly family, had a mixture of these things as well. Uh, Jesus did, in fact, have siblings, but they weren't always in favor of being related to him. We're told in the Gospel of John chapter 7, for not even his brothers believed in him. In Mark chapter 3, we're told at one point in time, Jesus' family attempted to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Basically, they thought Jesus was crazy. And so if your family dynamics are a little rocky or a little dysfunctional, a little off at times, then I guess you're in good company because Jesus was as well. Another interesting thing about our passage that we're going to see here in a moment is Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, is not mentioned at all. As a matter of fact, the last time Joseph is even mentioned in scriptures when he and Mary went to the temple with Jesus as a 12-year-old and they misplaced him. They thought he was with the company when they left and found out that he wasn't. Because we do read about Mary throughout the gospel, and we also read about Jesus having siblings, many begin to speculate that Joseph may have passed away by the time Jesus began his earthly ministry. Um, One more side note, the Bible does reveal, if you have a dysfunctional family, that families can, in fact, change. Uh, Even though at one time Jesus' family didn't believe who he was as the Messiah or the Savior, and they thought he was crazy, we know from the book of Acts that at least one of his brothers accepted him as his Savior, and now is the man named James, hence the book James in the New Testament is written by Jesus' brother. So with all that wonderful knowledge, let's look at the passage we're looking at this morning and walk through it. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciple, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. First thing I want to point out, and we may have missed it, is the lack of verse 47 in Matthew chapter 12. If you look at the end of verse 46, you should notice a little notation. It might be a number or a letter. And it gives us to the, takes us to the bottom of the page where you'll find verse 47 there at the bottom. It isn't a typo. Um, you most likely find it there, and it says that some manuscripts uh, insert verse 47, which that verse reads, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. There's some who believe that this verse was inserted at some point in time as the Gospels were being recorded and rewritten. There's others who believe that uh, this verse uh, was meant to be here originally, and so they took it and put it in, and then they took it. And Luckily for us, we have other Gospels. And so this particular passage is found in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, and Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. And in both accounts in Mark and Luke, it is mentioned 
that someone brought it to Jesus' attention that his mothers and brothers were outside and they wanted to see him. Now, verse 48 implies that when he replied to the man who told him. But Mark does tell us that, in fact, a man came to Jesus to bring this to his attention. It's in Mark chapter 3, verse 32, and Luke chapter 8, verse 20. So whether or not verse 47 is meant to be here, we can use the Gospels, which is what we're doing with this series, and we can put together the, the entire picture and know that, in fact, verse 47 did happen. Now, when we read through the Bible, we have to admit there are going to be some difficult passages to understand, but I also hope when you read through your Bible that you also see the humor of God within it. Here in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has been teaching on some pretty heavy topics. If we were to go back, he deals with blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He deals with knowing a tree by its fruit. He deals with knowing an individual's heart by the words that come out of their mouth. He points to the signs that God has given his people through the prophet Jonah and the queen of the south. And he's just taught on demonic possession. And so I think these are pretty heavy topics, but we come here to verse 46, and it says, while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still teaching, someone sees a squirrel. Now, if you didn't read squirrel in the passage, it's because it's not there. But if you've ever taught people, whether it be at school or at work or at church, there always seems to be at least one person in the crowd that gets distracted very easily and sees a squirrel. That's what I mean. Someone saw a squirrel. Here's Jesus teaching on these deep spiritual truths, and someone within the crowd thinks it's the appropriate time to tell Jesus while he was speaking, hey, your mommy and your brothers are outside. If you've ever been in that situation where you're trying to keep a class or a group of people together to teach them, again, you're in good company because Jesus had to deal with that well, with that as well. But this is the situation of our text. Jesus is teaching. His family shows up, and they believe that they have the right to interrupt him in that moment and to see him. And this day, family was a priority amongst the Jewish people. And since most people believe Jesus to be the natural-born son of Mary and Joseph, and if Joseph had indeed passed and Jesus was the firstborn, it was his responsibility within the family to take care of his widowed mother. Jesus, being the firstborn, would have been expected to have stayed home and to learn the family trade from his father. And we, we tend to say that Joseph was a carpenter, but that word in the Greek literally means that he worked with his hands. He was a hand worker. He could have built stuff, but he could have just moved rocks. Well, Jesus' response would have been completely countercultural to his audience in asking, who is my mother and who is my brothers? It's a question of asking, who is my family? And then to go even further to say that those who follow him, he says, his disciples, and he points to them, that these individuals are my family. What Jesus is doing here, and we can overlook it, he is disrupting the social norm. And it appears that Jesus is being rude. It appears he's being anti-family, but this isn't what he's teaching here in our passage. We know from the Gospel of John, Jesus did in fact love his mother. We know that he was God in the flesh, so he would have loved his siblings. As in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is on the cross and he's breathing his last breath, he tells Mary that now the Apostle John is going to be a son. And he looks at the Apostle John and says, Mary is now going to be your mother. And then we're told in verse 27 of chapter 19, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
So in his dying breath, Jesus made sure that his mother would be taken care of. Jesus isn't anti-family here in our passage, which also should be evident by the words he uses in verse 49 and 50. But what he is saying about family here reveals something that we have to understand about God's call. God's calling overrides worldly attachments. Jesus came to teach on the kingdom of God. He came to make God known. He came to draw people to himself. He came to live a perfect life. He came to die on the cross and resurrect from the dead so that we might be forgiven from our sins and be given eternal life. Jesus cared about his family, but what he reveals here is he cared more about God's calling and purpose for his life than worldly things. And the Bible says that we are to imitate Christ. So we have to have the same mind as Christ. We have to have the same value system. God's calling and purpose for our life has to outweigh all worldly comforts, all worldly conveniences, all worldly attachments. And here's the hard thing. This even includes our family. We can see this played out in Scripture. If we were to look to the life of Jonathan from the Old Testament, if you don't know who Jonathan is, Jonathan and David, they were best buds. The problem was is that Jonathan's dad was King Saul, and King Saul didn't care for David. But at the same time, Jonathan understood God's calling and purpose for David's life was that he was to be king, not his father Saul. We tend to overlook this, but Jonathan, being the son of the king, was the natural successor to be the next king of Israel. But Jonathan overlooked his birthright. He went against his father's wishes, and he stood for and with David. Now, I'm not saying, children, today that you should disrespect your family or disrespect your parents. The command about honoring our father and our mother is the only commandment in Scripture which comes with a promise. But it might be that we have to stand against adults. We have to stand against maybe parents at times or siblings at times if they're wanting us to go against what God has called us to and what God's purpose is for our life. The same goes for the authorities in, in our government. We're told in Scripture we are to submit to them. We are to honor them and pray for them because it is God who's put them in place. It is not our vote. God put them there. But at the same time, we look to the life of Daniel in the Old Testament, and even though we are to submit to governing authorities, we aren't to do it if it goes against God's word and will. We see the same principle about overriding worldly attachments in the life of Abram. He later become known as Abraham. If you want to read it later, it's in Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abram to leave his country, to leave his relatives, and to leave his family. And just as it was in Jesus' day, the family unit in the world of Genesis was heavily important because it offered protection and it offered a future. Yet Abram understood that God's calling to let go of his worldly attachments and to get on God's plan. We see it a couple times in the life of Peter in the New Testament, and we see it, see it through learning lessons. After feeding of the 5,000, which is found in all four of the Gospels, Jesus has to dismiss his disciples to go across the lake while he dismisses the crowd, because the Gospel of John says the crowd was wanting to rally Jesus to be their king. So Jesus dismisses the crowd, he goes up on a hill, and he begins to pray. Well, a storm comes across the lake, and Jesus sees that his disciples are stuck. So he decides, hey, what a great time to go for a walk on the water. 
And so he starts walking to his disciples who are in the boat. They're panicking, especially when they see this figure walking on the water. But when they hear the voice of Jesus in the midst of the storm, Peter calls out and says, Lord, please let me come out to you. What an incredible act of faith to get out of a boat and to walk on water, which has never been done before. And so he starts walking on water. But you know what happens? He sees the wind. He sees the effects of the wind and the waves. He looks away from Jesus, and he sees what is going on all around him, and fear grips his heart and his life. He fears that he's going to die. And this isn't the only time that Peter fears for his life. He's going to do it again when he denies Jesus three times of even being with him. Sometimes our greatest worldly attachments are our own well-being. But we can't allow that to override God's calling on our life. I think this is one of the reasons many believers fear to share their faith. They fear what people are going to think about them or how they're going to treat them if they were to share about the good news. And in doing so, what we do is we show that our attachment is more to how people identify us rather than how God has identified us. Returning to another lesson, after Peter confesses the identity of Jesus Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he gets a pat on the back from Jesus. Well done, Peter. The very next passage, the very next moment, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem where he is going to be killed by the elders and chief priests. And do you know what happens? Peter decides this is an opportune moment to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. Peter rebukes Jesus. And so Jesus says to Peter, hey, get behind me, Satan. What's going on there is that Peter is so attached to the Jesus that he could see, so attached to the Jesus he could hear and he could touch. He was attached to Jesus' worldly form and presence and not to God's calling for Jesus' life, which caused Jesus to harshly rebuke him. Here's the thing. We can be attached more to people than God. We can be attached to the idea of being in a relationship more than God. We can be more attached to our marriage than to God. And so we have to look at those things. If there's anything in our life which overrides our love for Christ and our relationship with God, then this is how we have to identify it. It's an idol. It's an idol. We might give it a different name. We might call it a sport. A relationship, a friend, our peers, music, extracurricular activities, hobbies, money, even family. But if it takes more precedence in our heart and in our mind and in our life than our relationship with God and our pursuit after him and his calling for us and his purpose for our life, then you have an idol there. Jesus is not going to let others here in Matthew 12 to define what he should do or where he should go because he was not going to allow the things of this world or rather thought he should do, override what he knew God's calling and purpose was for him. The most in the crowd would have been taken back. Thought, Jesus, man, he, this is a rude guy. This guy is disrespectful. He delivers a much happier message. He reminds us that God calls us to family. As Jesus' earthly family shows up feeling that they deserve an audience with him, Jesus points out that everyone in the crowd, all of his disciples, this is my family. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. He says, this is my family. 
He says it to disciples who minister 12, but it also means anyone who is genuinely following after Jesus. That's what a disciple is. You're a follower. You know, the strange thing about family in the Bible, because we call this a church family, and we want to have good Christian values in our family and be a good Christian family. Just think about the families in Scripture for a second. I thought about this last week. Almost every family in Scripture is dysfunctional. First family in Scripture, Adam and Eve had two kids, two boys, right? Cain and Abel. That didn't go well. You move on from that, you go to Noah. After the flood, Noah decides he's going to get drunk, pass out naked in his tent. Yeah, that's Scripture right there. That's a man God used. And one of Noah's sons decides to go into the tent, and the language is, is that he looked intently at his naked father. That's why he was cursed. And then he walks out and the other brothers go in and cover him. How about Jacob and Esau with sons of Isaac? There's a good family structure. The wife lies and gets her son to lie to the father. The, the brothers want to kill each other. Then there's Joseph. Joseph gets a nice coat from his daddy, right? And his brothers are so happy for him, aren't they? No, they throw him in a hole. They sell him off. They wanted to kill him, but one of the brothers speaks up. You go to Moses. Moses' brother and sister, after Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, Moses' own brother and sister rise up to revolt and rebel against him. The nation of Israel was to be seen as a family, yet when they came into the promised land and conquered it, Ten of the tribes, ten of the twelve tribes, rose up to attack two tribes over a miscommunication about a memorial. What about David? We've mentioned him already. You read the story of David. David was overlooked by his own father when the prophet Samuel showed up. Prophet Samuel goes through all the brothers like, well, is there anyone else? Like, oh, yeah, there's that the youngest one. He's out in the field, though. You look into David's life and how dysfunctional his family was. When he becomes king, his own son rises up against him to rebel and to take the king, kingdom from him. There's no telling how many kids King Solomon had, right? You talk about dysfunction with all the wives and concubines he had. Yet through all of the lessons about family in Scripture, what God reveals is that he holds family in high regard. Hence, he calls us the family of God. Families in God's eyes are meant to work together. They're meant to take care of one another. They're meant to protect each other, to love each other, and to be, for each other, be with each other in times of need. But there is a lesson when we look at families in Scripture and how God structures families and what happens with them. We are the family of God as a church, and here's the lesson. Just like your family, there are going to be issues sometimes that we have to work through as a family. If you're here visiting and you're trying to find the perfect church, let me just bust your bubble. You're never going to find it. Because the church is made up of sinful people gathering together as the family of God to worship the one true God. You'll never find a perfect church until we get to heaven. But God calls us to be a part of a church family so we represent to the world that we are an eternal family. And when God sees us gathered here today, he says, here is my family. Here are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. Yeah, they're dysfunctional. 
but they're mine. They belong to me. If you're here this morning, like, well, how do I become a part of the family of God? It's simple. You have to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to ask forgiveness from God and believe that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven and be given eternal, become a part of the eternal family of God. And what Scripture says is God then adopts us into his family. I think a lot of us know that, that idea of adoption. We have people who have been adopted. We have people here who have adopted. But I'm going to read a couple of passages of Scripture about this adoption. From Romans chapter 8, verses 13 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that is a, general, a gender neutral word, that word sons. It's just clumping. It's like, hey, y'all, that type of thing. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might be glorified with him. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. And finally, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, in love, he predestined us for adoption as, God, as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's a lot in those passages. We don't have time to unpack them. But I want to focus on one word that's found in all three of those passages, adoption. Again, many of us are familiar with that idea of adoption. If you've adopted people or you've been adopted. When God adopts us as his children, here's this incredible promise. When God adopts you as, your, as his child... You and I get to have the same level of intimacy with him as Jesus. We get to call him Father, Abba. We get to be intimate and relational with him. But this word adoption holds so much more significance in the world to which Paul is writing, that being the Roman world. See, in the Roman world, you could disown your biological child for many reasons. You could kick him out of the family. But in the Roman world, the law was if you adopted a child, you could never disown that child. The adopted child would, in fact, have more rights than the biological one. And this is the image that Paul is painting when he uses this word adoption as he writes to the Roman world. The biological children of God were the children of covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Jewish people. But through the new covenant established through Jesus Christ, now non-covenantal people can be adopted as God's children and be given the same rights and even more rights through Christ. And just think how this plays out. The Jewish people had their temple worship. At the temple, there was a priest that was selected by Lot who could go into the Holy of Holies, into what is believed the presence of God. But now if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Bible says that we can enter into God's presence with confidence and full assurance. 
The Jewish people had a sacrificial system where they would constantly set making sacrifices in order to remain a right, to keep a right relationship with God. But now through Jesus Christ and our faith in him alone, he is the ultimate sacrifice who has brought us back to God, declared us righteous, and has clothed us with his perfect and holy righteousness. While in captivity, the Jewish people believed that since they couldn't go to the temple, since they couldn't go to Jerusalem and worship God, that they were separated from his presence. But now in Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus is always with us. Nothing can ever separate us from the love and the presence of God. The Jewish people lived under the leadership of a king. Now we live under the leadership of the king of kings. The Jewish people would hear the word of the Lord from the prophet. Now we have the greatest prophet that ever lived, died, and rose again. And God has delivered his word through his spirit to which we have the Bible. We can hear him speaking to us every single day. The Jewish people had to rely on priests for the relationship with God. But now we have the great high priest in Jesus Christ. Thank God we've been adopted by the most high God. Amen. One more thing I want to see about God's call. God's call to families to be obedient. Look in verse 50 with me. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. In simplest terms, doing the will of God means believing and following Jesus. The word will can be read as wishes or desire. As God's family, as God's church, We want to do what God desires and what God wishes, and we find that out through his word. But it's not always going to be easy, and it's not always going to be understood, even by other believers. Capture that, I want to point to the latter parts of Acts 20 and into the beginning of Acts 21. In Acts 20, verse 17, the Apostle Paul calls the elders of Ephesus to come to him And he explains to them that he is heading back to Jerusalem. And he uses these words because he is constrained by the Spirit. That's Acts 20, verse 22. He's constrained by the Spirit to go back to Jerusalem, even though he's unsure what's going to happen to him when he arrives there. That word constrain means that Paul was bound by and bound to the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem. We have to keep in mind at that point in time in Paul's life, the Jewish leaders were not big fans of the Apostle Paul. They've already tried to kill him. They had a bounty out for him. And they did not care for his conversion to Christianity and his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where after Paul leads the elders, he begins this farewell tour as he heads back towards Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 21, Paul arrives in Caesarea, or Caesarea to the house of Philip the Evangelist. And while he's there, there's a prophet that arrives at the same house from Judea. And he comes to Paul, and he tells Paul what is going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. And he says, he tells him how the Jews in Jerusalem are going to bind him, and they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles, speaking of the Romans. And upon hearing the news, Paul's traveling companions, Paul had an entourage, And his traveling companions hear this prophet's words, and all the people in the house begin begging and pleading for Paul not to go back to Jerusalem. And Paul's response to them was, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And I bring this event to mind because we're talking about being obedient. 
and being in the will of God and the plans of God and the purpose of God and the calling of God. When we are in God's will, that does not mean life is going to be easy. Just because we are doing what God has called us to do, and we know that God wants us to do this, maybe saying what God has told us to say, living a certain life that God has called us to live, that does not mean everyone is going to understand it or agree with it. But if we know that it is the will of God, then we must be faithful and obedient. To do the will of God means we are conforming to God's ways. And Jesus says here in verse 50 that this is the evidence we are, in fact, part of God's family. Which leads us to a question. Is there something that God has called you to do and you're being disobedient to it? Maybe it's to end a relationship. Maybe it's to start hanging out with different people, have different hobbies or habits. Are you being obedient to that calling? Here real quick. When I say end a relationship, I don't mean end a marriage. Okay? I don't mean that at all. If you're married, you're married. You're stuck. Deal with it. Dysfunction and all. But if God is calling you to do something, Jesus says here in verse 50, the evidence that we're actually part of God's family is that we're obedient to it. Final question I have to ask this morning is this. So we began our service with a baptism in Coulter and making that testimony before us all. The question is this, are you a part of the family of God? Are you God's child? Can you call out to him as your father? Because this is also God's will for your life. Did you know God's will is that everyone would be saved? That's God's will. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've yet to be forgiven for your sins, that means you're not saved. And you're not heading for heaven. You're heading for eternal separation from God. But this is why we preach the good news in the gospel. Because God created you for a relationship with him. And it is your sin that is separating you from that relationship. And you can't do enough good things to remove your sin problem. You can't do enough good things to prove yourself to God. You can't do enough good things to prove you deserve to go to heaven. Then God knows this already. That's why he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for your sins and rise again to show that he has authority to forgive your sins and give you eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you believe that to be true, that doesn't mean you, you understand everything about it, but you believe that to be true. Then we have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved, or I want to be saved. And I promise you this, there's not a person in this room that won't be excited for you just as much as we are excited for Coulter. So I'm going to invite you to come if you need to come. I'm going to invite you to come to your knees if you know God is calling you to do something and you've just been unfaithful to that calling. But we're going to pray together, and Jackson and Bridge are going to lead us in the song. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for adopting us and claiming us as your own. You not only know us, but we're allowed to know you intimately. You've saved us. You've given us eternal life, and you're preparing our eternal home for us. Father, I pray if there's someone here this morning and needs to make a confession of faith to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, to find forgiveness for their sins and be given eternal life, I pray that your spirit would come upon their heart, 
that you would open their eyes and their ears and they would respond by coming down and making that publicly known. Thank you for this incredible gift you've given us. Thank you for allowing us once again to be in your presence. Lord, we pray as we sing this song of invitation that your kingdom and will will continue to be done. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.